The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Um, Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Louis the Sixteenth was the King of France in seventeen eighty nine. He was worse than Louis the Fifteenth. He was worse than Louis the Fourteenth. He was worse than Louis the Thirteenth. He was the worst since Louis the First. <laughs> king Louis was living like a king, but the people were living rotten. So the people, they started an uprising, which they called the French Revolution. And of course, you remember their battle cry, which will never be forgotten. You went the wrong way, old King Louis. You made the population cry. Cause all you did was sit and pet with Marie Antoinette in your place at Versailles. And now the country's gone kablooey So we are giving you the air That ought to teach you not to spend all your time Fooling round at the Foley Berger If you had been a nicer king We wouldn't do a thing But you were bad, you must admit We're gonna take you and the queen Down to the guillotine And shorten you a little bit you came the wrong way, old King Louis, And now you ain't got far to go Too bad you won't be here to see that great big Eiffel Tower Or Bridget Bardot To you, King Louis, we say fooey You disappointed all of France But then what else could we expect from a king In silk stockings and pink satin pants 
You filled your stomach with chop suey And also crepe Suzettes and steak And when they told your wife Marie that nobody had bread She said let them eat cake We're gonna take you and the queen Down to the guillotine It's somewhere in the heart of town And when that fella there is through With what he's gonna do You'll have no place to wear your crown You came the wrong way, old King Louis. Now we must put you on the shelf That's why the people are revolting Cause Louis, you're pretty Revolting yourself Going to New Orleans This time I'm walking to New Orleans I'm walking to New Orleans I need to buy shoes When I get to walking these shoes Yes, I'm walking to New Orleans Got my suitcase in my hand I ain't that a shame Even here today, I'm going back home to stay. Yes, I'm walking to New Orleans. It used to be my morning. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guy guess this hour is returning to the show i think it was back in uh, january maybe maybe it was that long ago when uh, uh, jason berry joined me to talk about his book city of a million dreams a history of new orleans at year 300 and uh this is really kind of a part two because there's so much to talk about with regard to new orleans so with that i welcome back to the show joining me by phone jason berry Jason, welcome to the show. Tom, always a pleasure, and thank you. Um, and, and you've been on the show a couple times, actually, because I, I remember we did uh, talk a little bit about some of your investigative journalism work with uh, regard to pedophilia and uh, predatory priests and so on. Um, but uh, but I, but I want to revisit the, the story of New Orleans because it has so many moving parts and and different aspects and of course in uh recent well over this past year we've uh, uh seen people uh, uh talking about the removal of uh statues uh civil war generals heroes they were considered when the statues were erected um but that's a that's a part of new orleans history as much as anything else, isn't it? It is indeed, and I would say the emotional fires have have gone down a good deal since uh, Mitch Landrew in the final year of his mayoralty uh, with the full support, or six to one support of the city council, 
dismantled four um, Confederate monuments. Um, I guess the issue that uh, the new mayor, LaToya Cantrell, has been dealing with is where those uh, statues should go. Uh, The fourth monument actually is a... uh, Oh, well, it's... it, it commemorates what is called the Battle of Liberty Place. And I don't think it is going to be reinstalled anyplace else because it uh, commemorates a revolt um, uh, in, in, after uh, Reconstruction uh, against the police and the Republican Party, which was trying to hold a constitutional convention. So um, that is pretty much uh, non grata, you might say, even with a lot of the conservative groups. But the, the three statues that are at issue, you might say, and where they will go is still an open question, are Robert E. Lee, um, uh, Jefferson Davis, and, um, oh my gosh, who is the, the third one? <laughs> I'm glad we're because I'm drawing a blank on the third one. It'll come to me in a moment. Oh, uh, P.T. Beauregard, who uh, was a, a general for the Confederacy, but a very interesting figure in that after the Civil War, Beauregard, who was a trained engineer, began making moves toward reconciliation with the black leadership. By the time the statue was put up, uh, more than a generation later, after his death, uh, they put him on a horse uh, commemorating his role in the Civil War. So the three statues taken together, all of which went up you know, in the 1890s uh, up until the early 20th century, collectively represented uh, the symbolism of the resurgent white South. Lynching was the tool by which white supremacy regained its power after the war. And that fact has been sort of nettlesome, I think, to a lot of the preservationist groups and conservatives who kept arguing, well, these statues are history, they represent history. And the other side, Mayor Landrieu among others, uh, argued, well, these statues are symbols of white supremacy, not so much history because the South lost the war. So that's kind of where the debate ended. Even the conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, ruled that the city was well within its rights to remove the statues because it had the legal authority. That's not the case in other states. For example, in Virginia, you may have followed, uh, you know, some of the dispute um, in Richmond over the long uh, row of, of Confederate monuments. They installed one to Arthur Ashe, the famous tennis player, uh, some years ago. But it's the legislature that controls uh, the standing or status of those monuments. Aside from the Civil War, what are some of the the historical uh, significant components to the evolution of New Orleans? Well, I think the most developed 
in New Orleans of the 20th century uh, was dance. It's the Native American art form. It arose with a, a constellation of major artists, uh, Louis Armstrong, you know, most people among them, Billy Roll Morton, uh, one could go down the long list. They took a, a sound that was associated with the in a, in a diaspora in the early 20th century, 20s and 30s. They took it out to Chicago, New York, and points afar. Um, and the city now really markets itself as the, the birthplace of jazz. So I would say that probably has been um, the most important development associated with the city until Hurricane Katrina, uh, which, of course, <laughs> made us a disaster uh, headline for a long time. But now I think New Orleans represents a certain uh, comeback, uh, a kind of rebirth, and that, too, has added to uh, the cultural resilience associated with the city. As it begins to reestablish itself, um, how does how does the modern or contemporary political climate um, of of this this resurgence of white supremacy impacting New Orleans and and its rebirth? Well, I would say the resurgence of white supremacy was a major factor in the opposition to the dismantling of the monuments. The city spent a million dollars, much of it on in very uh, high-priced security to keep uh, surveillance on uh, neo-Nazi and Klan groups that were there trying to, to thwart the dismantling, and in that the city prevailed. Since the monuments have been removed, the presence of white supremacists and neo-Nazis, I would say, at least from what one follows in the media, in New Orleans is almost negligible. We haven't, thank God, had any kind of riots as you know we saw in Charlottesville. New Orleans is really a blue city. It's a democratic stronghold. It's majority African-American. And, um, you know, while there are certainly, you know, conservatives and Republicans who live within the city limits, uh, the city itself is an economic engine of the state. And even conservative lawmakers, uh, I think, recognize that. So although the state has, uh, as a whole, has been uh, percentage-wise supportive of Trump, um, you don't see... We have not had the same kind of uh, violent eruptions that, that other states have had. And I think part of that is because uh, the tourist economy is uh, so central uh, to the state and its uh, ongoing uh, rebuilding efforts. My guest is Jason Berry, author of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300. And we'll have more with Jason straight ahead. Hello? 
darling, this is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. I was telling you a little while ago about my wife, and I don't want you to be confused, but we were, I've been married more, more than once. In fact, I've been married three, three times. But my first two wives each died a very tra- tragic death. My first wife died from eating po- poisoned mushrooms. And my second wife died from a... Fr- fractured skull. She wouldn't eat her mushrooms. How do you do, ladies? 
and gentlemen, this is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsi than flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. My guest is Jason Berry, author of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300. And we'll have more with Jason straight ahead. You know, New Orleans has such a reputation for being such a blend of cultures, um, which has evolved throughout its its history um, to, you know, what it's known for today with the carnival parade and and uh, some of the you know just just the the jazz presence and the impact of uh, african-american musicians on american-based music it's um is is that actually new orleans or is that the image of new orleans well, I'd say the answer is frankly both. Uh, the music has a deep and powerful presence in the city, and it naturally uh, lends itself to the image of the town. You know, the, the book I wrote, City of a Million Dreams, argues that the city's beguiling personality uh, is shaped by a long tension between a culture of spectacle and uh, a city of laws, the legal apparatus. Uh, each of the major episodes in the book uh, chronicles the way this popular culture of particularly jazz funerals and carnival traditions, say, of the black Indians, Mardi Gras Indians, kept colliding with um, a legal apparatus that was trying to uphold white supremacy and ultimately failed, as it failed across the South as well in the 1960s. Um, but what you have today is, is a, a tourist economy that depends heavily on the public perception um, of the parading culture, both the Mardi Gras and uh, during... Uh, the jazz festival in the spring when so many of the marching groups are out in full flower. And, uh, of course, the, the restaurants and the rich uh, architectural uh, patent of the city. So, in a sense, New Orleans, I think, uh, has gotten a new lease on life, you might say, with all of the rebuilding since Hurricane Katrina by uh, promoting uh, its cultural blend as you say and that that cultural blend is does not go back as far as most of us tend to think well uh, <laughs> i would say it goes back to the founding of the city in 1718 um but but I yet mean, i know real. but but i know mm -hmm. musicians for example who um uh, under would not so very long ago within maybe the last 50 to 60 years talked about situations where 
blacks and whites were not allowed to perform together. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yes, the acknowledgement of that blended society did really not emerge, I would say, until the 1970s after the uh, federal court decisions. You know, it, it's quite striking that Preservation Hall, which is so uh, famous as uh, you know the temple of traditional jazz right in the heart of the French Quarter, it was founded in 1960 by an art dealer, Larry Bornstein, who very soon on uh, sold it to uh, uh, the Jaffe's, uh, Alan and, and Sandy Jaffe, who had moved down from Pennsylvania, were jazz aficionados. He also had a degree from Wharton uh, School of Economics, which, uh, you know, gave him, you know, quite a uh, quite a slant on how to do business. He was also a very accomplished tuba player. And during uh, the early 1960s, I can't, I, the street, I can't help it, but only in New Orleans <laughs> would somebody refer to somebody as an accomplished tuba player. <laughs> well... I won't mention any names, but there are some tuba players who are not accomplished. But anyway, this guy was sitting in with the band in the club that he owned. And and most of these musicians adored uh, Alan Jaffe. He helped them. He not only helped rebuild their careers, but if there were medical issues, he'd take them to the doctor. I mean, he was a principal guy. And so here he is playing tuba in Preservation Hall, I think it's 1960, and David Brinkley comes to town with an NBC <laughs> camera crew, and he does a piece on Preservation Hall. And this is right in the middle of all the civil rights struggles. The city is, in a legal sense, governed by the laws of segregation. And so it's illegal for a white musician to be playing in a band with African-Americans. So this goes out on national television, and all of a sudden the city fathers have to decide, well, wait a minute, what are we going to do? Are we going to send the cops in to bust Preservation Hall, which is pulling in tourists? That's one small cameo I cite in the book on the way in which the, the cultural river that was flowing through those years with its wellsprings uh, far back before the Civil War at the slave dances, dances of enslaved Africans, I should say, at Congo Square, fed that powerful stream. So the city kept changing because of the music, because of the popular culture, because of the parading groups. It had to make accommodations for what people wanted. And and that's true by, you know, anecdotally by, by stories I've heard of, you know, black and white musicians breaking the law and, and playing together in after-hours places and, you know, under the, under the radar, occasionally being raided and arrested and so on. Oh, you know, there are stories, a legion of stories like that. One of the ones that really comes to mind involves... Uh, Al Boletto, who who was a good friend of mine, he died several years ago. Al was a terrific uh, bebop uh, player on alto sax. He, he later had a big band, uh, did some marvelous sets at the Jazz and Heritage Festival over many years. When he was very young and starting out, he would sneak into black clubs 
just to be there to absorb the music. And, you know, they kind of look at him and say, okay, we'll go sit in the corner. Don't make any noise, you know. But if the cops would come in, you know, the bartender could be arresting for having this white kid sitting there and he's grooving to the music. There are lots of, of stories like that. Uh, Dr. John, who, you know, passed away just some months ago, right. is probably, you know, one of the more famous musicians of recent years. And, you know, when he was 15 years old, he was crossing the color line at, at a time when it was, you know, dicey to do so. Yeah, it was it was still illegal. I, I mean, there, there were people jailed for that. There were indeed. Uh, in fact, the actor Randolph Scott, I don't think he's remembered by a lot of people anymore, but he was pretty prominent back in the 50s. He starred in a lot of westerns. He came to New Orleans and was a jazz lover, and he went to the Dew Drop Inn, which was uh, uh, you know a black club, uh, in what is now called Central City. And they went in there to, you know, enjoy an evening of music. And, you know, the bartender, I guess the waiters all welcomed him. People knew who he was. And the cops happened to come in that night. Well, they arrested this famous actor for sitting <laughs> in a black club. And the judge dismissed the charges because he was a celebrity. So he let him off easy. But it was an example of the shape of things to come. And the people that that helped shape those things. Absolutely. You know, um, Art Blakey, the drummer, famously said, when you put an idea out into the world, the world owns it. He was talking about musical streams, musical notes. Um, Obviously, songs are copyrighted, as they should be. But... In, in, you know, in the larger oxygen supply of music, and this is not just reflecting on jazz, but, you know, you find it in, in many art forms. Um, there's a certain common currency that, that develops as, as music changes, as society changes. You know, hip-hop in many ways is telling the story of uh, young African-Americans who've been at the margins, who are pushing, you know, not only to get on stage, but to have their stories heard. And it has quite, as we now know, quite a crossover appeal, you know, with young whites. This is a story of popular culture, and I think New Orleans, in a very real sense, and I'm not saying this out of chauvinism or anything, but I think New Orleans has really been a pioneer in that regard, um, you know, uh, Langdon Winter, uh, who was a really good writer for Rolling Stone back in the day, uh, in the Rolling Stone history of rock and roll, says that New Orleans has the longest and continuous history of playing rock and roll music of uh, any place around. Well, back in the 50s, before it was called rock and roll, before Elvis, you might say, revolutionized everything, they were playing rhythm and blues, the early Fats Domino hits. You know, walk into New Orleans. Sure. Uh, ain't that a shame? All those songs people still dance to. They were called R&B, and then it became rock and roll. So the city has really been a kind of progenitor in that sense. And you see it now with bounce music, which, you know, has come out of many of the marginal neighborhoods in an economic sense of the city. It is a – the music is a life force, I believe, of New Orleans. The um – um 
the way that New Orleans evolved, would it have evolved had it not been a port city? That's an interesting question. One of the things I really wrestled with in writing this book, City of a Million Dreams, was how how the river, in a sense, uh, shaped the character of the place. People from disparate countries, far-flung places. I mean, it's easy to romanticize and say the French and the Spanish and the Germans and the Irish came all true. When you deal with African Americans, there is that that deep awareness of ancestors who came in chains. So not everybody came by any stretch on equal terms. And it's often easy, you know, to kind of take a colorblind attitude toward this, you know, look at the past through, you know, rose-colored glasses. But because it was a port and because there were so many Native Americans there as the city got off the ground, there were endless examples of what we might call fundamental negotiations of how people were going to live. Bienville, the founder of the city, French-Canadian, nobleman, covered with snake tattoos to demonstrate to Indians that he could fight, and he was a very fierce warrior. He needed to anchor the food chain, and he needed Indians who lived in the area to help with that. So the city, in a sense, was able to survive because of his diplomacy with Indians. You know, you move ahead in time, and you see in the mid-19th century, so many of the Irish and Italian immigrants who came fleeing, you know, the poverty in those countries— trying to find a, a new place where they could live. Well, the New Basin Canal, which was built to link Lake Pontchartrain to one of the central uh, arteries, waterways flowing into uh, the city, was built largely by the Irish. And we don't know exactly how many of them died, but it was, it was awful work, uh, such that many of the white uh, power brokers, you might say, would not let their slaves, uh, even for daily wages paid to the owners, go work in digging that canal because it was so dangerous. People were dying of, of yellow fever and cholera. So, you know, it was immigrants who built this city, even though when people come and, and see these large mansions in the Garden District or the elegant old structures in the French Quarter, you know, the story behind those buildings is, well, famous balconies, wrought iron balconies, French Quarter, were largely the result of Creoles of color, freedmen who knew how to forge, and many of the ironwork designs are similar to ones in Cuba. So there was definitely a, uh, a Spanish overlay in the way in which those peoples came together and created the balconies and the screen porches that are so famous today. So it really was a crossroads of humanity. And and it's kind of interesting. I, I have this impression of, uh, of, of lots of different peoples in lots of different ways arriving in New Orleans because it's a port city. And then 
the the blending that occurred culturally through music and and maybe art to a lesser degree um sort of moving its way through the country up the river i i think that's a pretty accurate take on what happened tom uh one of the things that struck me in, in doing the research for this book, City of a Million Dreams, was how in the early 19th century, you find people coming downriver to kind of seek their fortunes in New Orleans. The, the famous architect and master builder, Benjamin Latrobe, was chief among them. He came to build the waterworks, and he ended up dying of yellow fever before he finished the job. By the same token, you know, this city, which in the 1850s was the largest slave market in the United States, was unable, because of its civic mentality, and I mean the people who governed the city, to um, assure that the infrastructure was clean enough uh, in terms of water, in terms of streets, where sometimes goats and pigs would sink into the muck after heavy rains. It was an ill-governed city for all of its wealth. Once the Civil War comes and the city is occupied by the Union forces, it is well-governed for a period of three and a half years by generals who, of course, were hated by many members of the white population. But in a sense, by the time you get into uh, the era after the Civil War, pushing the idea of the city as a place that had to function better begins to arise. And um, in following that thread of the history, I was really pulled along by so many of these people who uh, really created a, a kind of world unto themselves, uh, harking back to that that long story of people from different places coming and, and finding their place in the sun, so to speak. Are there, I, I was just trying to think, there, there probably are only a handful of cities in the U.S. that have even close to as rich a history as New Orleans. Well, I would agree with that. Uh, certainly, New York is the chief example. I mean, it's the city of cities. It's a city of immigrants. Now, sadly, what we see is that Manhattan is so expensive because it's become an international finance center that few people can't afford, uh, you know, the rents or to own. Uh, Chicago certainly comes to mind. I've always been fascinated by the, the history of Chicago and how it has evolved and I guess the other chief example to me, or two examples, um, would be Los Angeles and San Francisco. Very different cities. Um, you know, San Francisco, having so many Chinese who, who settled there, and now with Silicon Valley, um, you, you see the same problem as in New York, uh, unless someone you know happened to buy their home uh, before the you know dot com explosion it's almost out of reach for ordinary people to buy homes there and they've got a tremendous homeless problem as well la you know has been shaped by, by so many different peoples uh, 
particularly Mexicans who who went there. Uh, and it's such a large city, and it's so spread out that. And I, I don't say this to sound, you know, condescending. I live in New Orleans. New Orleans is a poor city. L.A. is not. But, you know, L.A. is so diffuse. It's so spread out. San Francisco is beautiful, but, you know, they can't find housing for enough people. All the cities of this country right now, particularly with climate change, are are struggling to reestablish uh, a, a foundation and to maintain a certain identity. I mean, the big struggle in New Orleans right now is twofold. There's, there's still a great deal of poverty, and um, you know we need uh, the kind of programs to help get working people who do not have educations into you know decent housing and better jobs. But the larger question is water. Um, we have had just in the last three or four months uh, heavy flooding from rainfall in areas that never flooded during Hurricane Katrina. And of course, this is a national story. Many municipalities and rural areas are, are faced with water management as the climate change changes and as vertical discharges of water coming down from the sky become so intense. So, I don't know, 300 years on, the city is... <laughs> standing there, you know, facing the future with music behind it and everybody hoping we can, you know, remake the sewer system so that we don't float away. It's uh, there are so many aspects to this. And unfortunately, we're running out of time. I have a feeling we're going to end up, Jason, getting together from time to time to explore this more because there's just so, so many parts to uh, the all cities have their their history and all of that. But but not it's really only a handful that that have as rich uh, a history and as much impact on uh, American culture, ultimately, as New Orleans. Well, I would agree with that. And uh, in writing this book, City of a Million Dreams, I, I tried to capture that that essence. And I, too, have enjoyed our dialogue, and I would welcome uh, coming back on your program whenever you choose to have me yeah we should we should uh revisit this from time to time and what what uh what what else are you up to these days well i have all but finished a film a documentary based on one dimension of the book the film is called city of a million dreams and it uses jazz funerals and burial traditions as a lens on the evolution of the history so um, we are starting to enter in film festivals, and our great hope is that we will have the launch in the early months of next year. Well, we'll have to get together and talk about that, too. I will make sure you get a DVD. <laughs> All right. Hey, Jason. Or a link. Jason, great talking with you again, as always. And uh, um, best of luck with the film. Tom, the pleasure's mine. Thank you so much. All right. My guest is Jason Berry, author of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Number one. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Two. Virtual playdates, social and physical distancing can help save lives. Three. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner Program is hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and Start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. She wheels her wheelbarrow through streets that are narrow. Her barrow is narrow, her hips are too wide. So wherever she wheels it, the neighborhood feels it. Her girdle keeps scraping the homes on each side. In Dublin's fair city, where girls are so pretty, my Molly stands out cause she weighs 18 stone. That's 256 pounds. I don't mind her fat, but It's not only that, but she's cockeyed and muscle-bound, Molly Malone. I know a man, his name is Lang, and he has a neon sign. And Mr. Lang is very old, so they call it Old Lang Sign. Oh, what have you done, Billy Sal, Billy Sal? Oh, what have you done, Charming Billy? You took almost every cent from the U.S. government, which you spent on fertilizer, which is silly. All day, all night, Cary Grant That's all I hear from my wife is Cary Grant What can he do that I can't? Big deal, big star, Cary Grant Oh, the moon is bright tonight upon the car wash so I'm having my Volkswagen washed again. But the way things go with me, the way my luck runs, just as soon as they're finished, it will rain. On top of old Smokey, all covered with hair. Of course, I'm referring to Smokey the Bear. Here's a famous old folk song that you all know entitled Aura Lee. Every time you take vaccine, 
take it or I'll leave As you know, the other way is more painfully My grandfather's clock was the best ever made by the Timex company Just like the clock John Cameron Swayze displayed last night on the old TV Oh, it works underwater so perfectly And it still makes a ticking sound Which my grandfather tried only this afternoon And that's how the old man drowned Do not make a stingy sandwich pile the cold cuts high Customers should see salami coming through the right Oh, I diet all day and I diet all night It's enough to drive me bats Got no gravy or potatoes Cause the whole refrigerator's full of polyunsaturated fats Fairly well, Metrical And the others of that ilk let the diet start tomorrow, cause today I'll drown my sorrow in a double malted milk. When you go to the delicatessen star, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. I repeat what I just said before. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Oh, buy the corned beef if you must The pickled herring you can trust And the lox puts you in orbit A-OK -okay. But that big hunk of liverwurst Has been there since October 1st And today is the 23rd of May So when you go to the delicatessen star Don't buy the liverwurst don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst It'll make your insides awful sore Don't buy the liverwurst Don't buy the liverwurst This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program On a new and sunlit 
Well, it feels more like Mardi Gras than uh, Bastille Day, but we took a look at uh, New Orleans this past hour with Jason Berry. Thanks again to uh, Jason for his many visits to the uh, Tom Sumner program. Before that, very interesting conversation with Mary Ziegler, a uh, uh, legal historian and uh, professor of law at uh, Florida State University and the author of a new book about the uh, legal battles over abortion and um, before that this morning we uh, trying to think who was our our first guest this morning well thank you to all the guests on today's uh, edition of the Tom Sumner program and thank you to my co-host Andrea Sutton she'll be back with me tomorrow morning as we kick off Another Wednesday on the Tom Sumner program. Wednesday means Armchair Politics Day. We will be talking with uh, Shannon Cizek from the uh, Genesee Health Plan during the first hour. But uh, then we'll roll into Armchair Politics with political operative Bobby Clayton Walton joining our roundtable regulars. Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. And... Um, Anyway, love to have you along. We're going to start a bunch of uh, candidate interviews uh, after tomorrow, but I'll tell you more about that on tomorrow. In the meantime, have a great day. Enjoy the beautiful summer weather uh, as much as you can, and I'll see you tomorrow. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.